Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. I decided that uh, the 660 is the new 40, so it was time to get myself fitter and stronger, so I've got myself a personal trainer. And I had my first session this week, and I thought I was never going to walk again. (laughs) And I really do know what it is like now to really know what it's like not to breathe, not to be able to breathe. However, watch this space. (laughs) Because between now and Christmas, you'll be seeing less of me. (laughs) I will be fitter and stronger and determined. So it's uh, round two this week, and I've just about recovered enough to go back again for seconds. So all good stuff. It's um, interesting just now, Vlad and um, Shigan and myself, we have not spoken about today's service, except to say that we knew there were lots of people away. But it's just incredible that I've had a a really busy week. I've been incredibly distracted. Uh, When I'm preaching, I don't normally go out on a Saturday night because I want to keep my focus. But I went out last night to celebrate with Chris and Norman. I feel very echoey up here. Um, And and they've been married for, I don't know, how many years is it? 40. Goodness gracious. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of hard work to me. (laughs) But... um, but, uh, and, and I enjoyed that, and it was great, and I did it, but I've had a really distracted week, and uh, trying to put things down, trying to put things on paper, and yet I got up at six o'clock this morning to finish, and what Vlad has already spoken about, the songs that, that Shegan has brought to the worship, the worship was fantastic this morning, guys, it just focused me, you know, the whole purpose of worship before a preach is to focus everybody, but you know, it really helped to focus me. <clears throat> to get my mind and my thoughts back onto, you know, what I'd prepared and what's already gone before. And God is certainly in this place today. <clears throat> and um, as you know, we're doing the series of Synergy. Over across the summer, we're talking about the power of healthy relationships, particularly within the body of Christ. And we're looking at, um, <clears throat> we're looking at the life of Joseph and bringing out some parallels from the life of Joseph. Um, but really, the purpose of all this is to... <clears throat> consider powerful the power of healthy relationships within the body of Christ because working together, as Mark brought out in the first session, we are greater than the sum of our parts. What we can do together as a body of Christ in this place is going to be far more effectual than what we can all do as individuals. And so this morning, going on to the next um, section, it's chapter 42, and I want to talk this morning about protecting your heart. I want to talk about matters of the heart. And I'm not going to read chapter 42 because it's very long. I'm only going to read parts of it. But what I want to focus on today is uh, this section where this is where the brothers go down to Egypt to buy grain and where Joseph realises who they are. It goes on to chapter 43 before they realise who Joseph is. But I just want to focus on this, this section where the brothers are going down to Egypt. They've gone to buy grain And when Joseph sees them, he realises who they are. And I want to look at the heart of Joseph 
at that point. And I want to look at the heart of the brothers at that point and see what we can learn. And some of what I have already want to share is something that Vlad has already um, referred to. <clears throat> it, Proverbs is probably my favourite book in the Bible. If I ever am tired or weary or I'm not well and I want to read the Bible and I'm not sure where to pick, I just automatically go to Proverbs, think of what day of the month it is because there's 31 books of Proverbs. Look at the date. Okay, today is the... Well, I had a watch with a date on, but unfortunately it's too small. Um, Look at the dates, the 21st. Go to the 21st chapter of Proverbs and that's what I will read. I love Proverbs. Proverbs is a manual for living. It's full of wisdom. It's full of insight. It's full of understanding. And it helps you in every situation to know what to do, to how to make choices. It, the whole book of Proverbs talks about crying out to God for understanding and for help and for insight. Um, and and it start, the whole book starts off by saying, this is what the book's about. And if you want it, read on. Um, and so it was to Proverbs that I looked. And Proverbs says this. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And that word guard, it means to keep watch or as in a posted guard. So if you think of a prison, for example, um, with a guard posted outside, that guard is there to ensure that nobody unauthorised can go in and to make sure the person in there doesn't escape. And that's what this word guard means. When it says guard your heart, it means don't allow anything to go in that shouldn't really be in there and that will influence you for, for bad. But also, don't let anything come out that really is there in the core of your being. And so, <clears throat> to escape. And so that word heart in the Bible, it talks about, it means your mind and your will and your emotions and your intellect, the very core of who you are. And it's our mind and our will that is influenced so hugely by the world that will cause us to make good or not so good choices. And the Bible says, and I think that you cannot ignore this word, this verse. There are dire consequences for ignoring this verse. Guard your heart, the Bible says. Guard it because it determines the course of your life. It really does. And each and every one of us, if we had time to sit back and think about it, would know that that's absolutely true. The choices, the decisions, the influences, our emotions determine the course of our life. And therefore, um, the Bible says, just put, put a guard on it. And what is the guard? Well, the guard is the word of God. To know the word of God and to know what to do. I can think of, <clears throat> I mean, I've been a Christian now for nearly 40 years. And I can think of times over and over and over and over again where I've seen particularly girls make the same mistake over and over, thinking that actually this time they'll conquer it or they won't go down the same path as someone else because they're stronger or they're better. But actually the consequences of their actions will produce the same outcome. And the Bible says that we have to guard it. We really have to guard it. We have to... I don't know whether it's because of the way I'm wired or whether it's the way that I've trained myself, but I'm not impulsive. I'm not an impulsive buyer. I won't go to the shops and buy things on impulse. I will think about it, and if I really want it, 
um, then I'll go back for it another day. If it's gone, well, I wasn't supposed to have it anyway. I'm not an impulse buyer. <clears throat> and there, I don't usually do in things on impulse. I'm a reflector. I want to check it out and study it and research it and make sure, with all my decisions in life, to make sure that, um, that actually I'm doing the right thing and think about the consequences. One of the things that we neglect to do when we don't guard our heart is we don't think about the consequences way down the road. Way down in the future, what might this look like for me? Way down in the future. And that, that's, this scripture is absolutely fundamental um, because it will determine the course of your life. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs 5 also says this. It says, um, refuse good advice and watch your plans fail. Take good counsel and watch them succeed. And many of us will go bullish into something because we think we're right. And we don't need to ask anybody else. But the Bible says very clearly, refuse good advice and watch your plans fail. Take good counsel and watch them succeed. And it's really important that we understand this and that we're not too proud. And in fact, it's just reminded me of something. I can remember way, way back when I was in my mid-twenties when there was a guy in the church, actually, and we were in a very... Um, a, friend, a good friendship, a good friendship. And I went to these, my two best girlfriends, and I said to them, what do you think about this guy and me? What do you think? Do you think we would make good marriage partners? And both of them said to me, do you want the truth? And I said, of course I want the truth. And they both said, no, don't go there with a the barge pole. And I said, okay. And uh, I listened to their advice, I took their advice, and eventually our friendship you know, went its own way. And I knew that, I know this guy's backslidden. I know this guy went away from God. I know that, you know, he turned away from the church. So I listened to the advice of my two good friends. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, sometimes we're too proud. We don't want to share our plans because we think people will pour cold water onto them. But actually, sometimes that cold water is the truth. And we need to hear the truth and we need to be open enough because when we get good counsel, people will point out things in your plans that you haven't seen because you're so focused on one part of your plan that, um, <clears throat> that uh, you're not seeing the whole of the big picture. And it's really, really important that when you need some good advice and when you need that you go to people, you know people who've got your heart people who understand you, people who want the best for you, but most of all, people who will tell you the truth. If you know, any of you know, you ladies, if you ever come to me to ask me anything, I will tell you the truth. You may not want to hear it, but I will tell you the truth. I don't believe in flanneling and, you know, I don't believe in... I can see you smiling. <laughs> I don't believe in... I don't believe in, 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 in packaging things up to make them sound sweet so I don't offend you. I don't want to offend you. But you need to hear the truth sometimes. I need to hear the truth. I need good friends in my world that will tell me the truth about myself sometimes. It's really important that we take good advice because our, the Bible says our plans will fail if we don't. It's our ego that gets in the way. We can be so full of ourselves that we don't think anybody else's input is actually going to be valid in what we're doing. <clears throat> and we can become deluded to think that we can succeed where countless others have failed. It's a delusion. You know, we think oh, it won't happen to me. Well, it will happen to you because it happened to many others. 
one of the things in life that I've come to learn as I've got older is, why can't we learn from other people's mistakes? Life would be far less painful if we were to learn from other people's mistakes. But no, what happens? We, bo- we mostly want to make our own mistakes again. And then we learn from that. And the Bible clearly says that there is a way around that. We need to see things as they really are. And so, um, as we look at these verses, I just want to look at, at the heart of Joseph. And I'm going to go back into Genesis and pick up in some of Genesis 42. And so Joseph was governor of... Can you see it this week? Yes, you can. Good. So Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people. And it was him and his brother... It was to him that his brothers came. And when they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground, and Joseph recognised his brothers instantly. But he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they didn't recognise him. And he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come here to see how vulnerable our land has become. Jumping on to verse 14. But Joseph insisted, as I said, you are spies. And this is how I will test your story. I will swear by the the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go and get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. and Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out that you don't have a younger brother, then I'll know that you are spies. So Joseph put them all in prison for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, I am a God-fearing man, so I will do as I say. You will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison and the rest of you may go home with grain from your, for your starving families. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me and this will prove that you are telling the truth and you will not die. And to this they agreed. Um, speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We, we saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen And that's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Reuben asked. But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had spoken to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. So Joseph had learned the language of of Egypt, and obviously he was using that language and he saw recognized his brothers instantly but he didn't want to give away who he was now here we see a very different family relationship don't we to the one that we described a few weeks ago between Joseph and his brothers and by their conversation it's clear that they felt that their past is catching up with them and that they were regretting what they did to Joseph so let's just have a look at the heart of the brothers here One thing that has always, I don't know whether fascinated is the right word, but interested me very much um, as as something to try and understand 
particularly with the job I do, is that why people think they're being punished for their past when things go wrong. Where does that thinking come from? You know, you know I work in end of life, and I hear over and over and over and over again, I've got this illness because I'm being punished. God is punishing me. Why people say to me, patients say to me, why is God punishing me? And my answer is, why do you think that? Why do you think that? Why do we think that when God... Uh, sorry, why do we think that when things go wrong, it's a punishment? Where does that thinking come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. Where does that thinking come from? Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us to develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope in salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us. We've sung that this morning. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit um, to, fill, uh, to fill our hearts with his love. <clears throat> Where does that thinking come from? Psalm says, Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins, he does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. So where do we get that thinking, something must be a punishment because something has gone wrong in my life? Now clearly there are consequences for things we've done, and it may be that we reap consequences later in life. But I have heard millions of times, why is this happening to me? God must be punishing me. But the Bible clearly says, God does not punish us as we deserve. So where does that thinking come from? Well, I think it comes perhaps partly from our, from our childhood, from our growing up. Because we're taught, well, I was taught when I was growing up, and maybe you were too, that there's reward for being good and there's punishment for being naughty. I remember my poor mother, because she had six of us, and I remember my poor mother, when something went wrong, uh, she could never identify who had done it because we wouldn't tell her who, who the culprit was. And so she used to make us stand with our hands out like this and she'd get her wooden spoon and she'd go down the line, whack, whack, whack. So we'd all get whacked on the hands and she'd say, now who did it? We didn't say anything. So we should go down again, whack, whack, whack. We'd all get whacked with a wooden spoon. And after this had happened three or four times, she said, who did it? We said, Paul. <laughs> so <clears throat> we drove my poor mother to distraction. But, but we grow up with that, that thinking that there's reward for doing good and that there's punishment for doing bad. And what we fail to do is separate people from behaviour. So people become bad because their behaviour was bad. Instead of labelling the behaviour as bad, we label the person as bad. So my headmaster telling me you'll never amount to anything was putting a label on me rather than saying it's because of the way you behave and the way you think that you're going down this road. And so it's difficult. I think it's difficult for people who think they're bad to make good choices 
because we're wearing this label, actually, that says that we're bad, and therefore if we're bad, we need punishment. But it's clearly not what the Bible says. God says, and he's gone to great lengths to tell us that he will not punish us as we deserve. So Joseph's brothers were now beginning to regret what they had done to Joseph. And I wanted just to think about regret for a moment, because again, in my job, I hear thousands of times, when people get to the very end of their life, it's inevitable, it happens practically every time, there'll be some element of reflection back over their life. And we know that when people get into their 80s, it's very common for people in their 80s and 90s to reflect back over their life as part of the process of life. And when people know that their life is potentially coming to some kind of conclusion, there is a reflection back and then there's regret. I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish this had been different. I wish that had been different. But actually, regret is just torture because you can never go back and change what had happened. And I I remember some years ago now caring for this man who was um, Roman Catholic and he had he had been given a terminal diagnosis but he still had about six months left to live and he he had in his mind lived a bad life he had been bad to his wife bad to his children they were all estranged and every single day for those six months he called the roman catholic priest to come and give him absolution in case he died that night um, and he wanted to be free from his sin and he was tortured for six months this man And no matter how much we tried to say to him, um, and the Roman Catholic priest tried to say to him, that priest came to him time and time and time and time again to try and make this man feel better about, about himself before he died. He was so full of regret. Regret is like torture. And Jesus does not, God does not want us to live with regret. So now the brothers are in that state of regret We wish we hadn't done this to Joseph now because look what's resulting. We are now being punished. So what is regret? Regret is a negative, conscious and emotional reaction to personal past acts and behaviours. Regret is often a feeling of sadness, shame, embarrassment or depression, annoyance or guilt after one act or one acts in a manner they later wish not to have done so. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand because I guarantee every single person in this room has done something they regret. I guarantee in this room every single person has wished they didn't do something, they didn't make that choice, they didn't go to that place, they didn't have a relationship with that person or whatever. We all have regret. That's part of life. But it's how we deal with regret. And it's whether regret, uh, whether we can live with it or whether we allow it to torture us. And we know full well, as we've sung this morning in that beautiful exchange, that Jesus came to take away the things like regret and shame and guilt. So here the brothers are arguing about what happened and Reuben is saying, well, didn't I tell you? You know, Reuben is saying, I told you not to touch him, but you wouldn't listen to me. And I think Reuben was beginning to think, why didn't I stand up to them? Why didn't I behave differently? Don't we do that with regret? Why didn't I think to say this? Why didn't I stop that happening? Why didn't I intervene in that situation? Why didn't I persuade that person to change their mind? And that's what regret does to us. We look back and we replay that whole scenario, but with hindsight. Hindsight is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but we don't live with hindsight. And most of us don't live with foresight. We don't live with hindsight. 
And we have to use our foresight to see, to try, and, and that's why God says he's not quick to get angry. Isn't it wonderful that God is not quick to anger? We are quick to anger. We are quick to step in, and we are quick to, to make the situation worse. But God is not. God is not quick to anger. God will, will hold back. And the brothers now, and Reuben is beginning to regret, but I think let's have a closer look at guilt and shame here because I touched on this last time I spoke and it's interlinked because guilt is a deeply emotional form of regret, but it doesn't necessarily include remorse. We can regret something and not be sorry. We're only sorry and regretting it because we were caught and because we were found out and because the consequences of what we did have now come to fruition. But actually, if, as long as it stays hidden and, and uh, remains in the past, well, that's okay. But actually, remorse is a part of removal of guilt. And we need to, if we don't, guilt will just torture our soul and we won't be able to forget it. Guilt and regret are so interlinked and they thrive on each other. So if you're feeling remorseful about something and you're feeling guilty about something, that guilt is going to keep that regret in your life until the moment you die. It will never be, you will never be able to be released from guilt. And God never intended us to be ruled by guilt. And again, in my job, I hear over and over and over and over again, I feel guilty if I don't. I feel guilty if I don't do that. I feel guilty if I don't look after my dying relative. I feel guilty if I don't. And when people do things out of guilt, they're not doing it out of love, and it's very apparent. And it comes across because you do it begrudgingly when you're doing it out of guilt. And I've tried very hard in my life not to do things out of guilt because you don't do it with a right heart. Both my parents are dead now, and I cared for both of my parents. But I was very careful to do it because I wanted to do it out of love. I wanted to do it because I wanted to. I wanted to do it because it, it was my opportunity to give them something back for the way that they had cared for me in my life when I was small. And so guilt is useful in the short term because guilt helps us to identify we've done something wrong. Oh, I feel bad about that. I feel guilty I did that. Good. Now you can deal with it. But you also need to deal with the guilt. In the long term, guilt becomes torture. And I, my parents um, unfortunately divorced um, in, when I was in my 20s. But I know that until the day my mother died, she carried the guilt of that. And every time something happened in the family, she always put it down to the fact that my, we were separated, we were divorced, the family was, you know, um, broken and whatever. Every time something happened, I'd say, Mum, it's not because of that. Because we're growing up, we make mistakes, we get things wrong. But no, everything she would put down to the fact that it was her fault because, the fa because her and my dad were divorced. It wasn't true at all, but she never was able to, to get rid of that guilt. Um, and it was a torture to her. And by comparison, shame is something that's opposed on us by society. It's what other people deem to be unacceptable or honourable. And therefore, because, the, because other people think that you shouldn't be doing that. I, and I hate this phrase. I really hate it. When someone says, shame on you. No. Last time someone said, shame on me, I said, what? <laughs> because you don't approve of what I did and it doesn't fit into your values of life. You're putting shame on me? No, I'm not having your 
value of shame on me because of something you think I should have done when actually it was an unspoken expectation. (laughs) I had no idea you wanted me to do that. Now I didn't do it. You're putting shame on me. I don't think so. (laughs) So, (laughs) have it back. (laughs) We really need to be careful with our words. Shame is put on people because of our or society's set of values as to what is right and what is wrong. But actually, we shouldn't go by society's set of values. We go by this set of values of what is right and wrong. Um, And God will deal with um, our guilt and our shame. I think the brothers felt regret, but I think Reuben felt shame, and he was wishing that he'd stood his ground with his brothers. I'm not sure that any of them were remorseful, but actually the guilt and the shame that they carried was like a ball and chain around their leg. And many people are walking around life like this with a ball and chain of guilt and shame over their past and over their life, even believers. Most of the church isn't free. Don't fool yourself because everyone does this, that we're all free. (laughs) The church is, a lot of the church is just as bound as the world is, but don't let that stop you putting up your hands and worshipping God. Now, God says this in Romans, which is, really exciting. He says, now we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What does that word work together mean? It means, I didn't put it up there, but it means um, to cooperate. So everything cooperates together. So for simplification, all the good we've done, all the bad we've done, all the things, the shame, the guilt, everything that we've got in our life, God says, I'm going to weave all that together to work in you. And we've got to remember that God works in us. And guilt and shame do not allow for the fact that God works in us. God takes our whole life, everything that we are, everything that we have been. So when people say to me, oh, God's not interested in me, I'm not good enough, it's totally false. It's a lie because God takes everything and he made his decision 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross and he said, I'm going to die for you before you're even conceived, before you're even born, before you're even thought of. So how on earth can my behaviour now today affect what he did 2,000 years ago? He made his decision 2,000 years ago so that whatever I did, if I yield it to him, he's got the answer for it. And we sung that this morning too. God has got the answer for it. He's already made his decision. God's gracious gift, free gift, enables us to loose the shackles of guilt and shame that, that, that we feel give us the need to be punished for what we did. It's the free gift. We just have to line ourselves up with the truth of the word. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because we belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. I can leave all that behind because now I'm free because God has made me free. He's taken my whole life. He's weaved all together the good and the bad. And he says, I'm going to work it all together for what? For good. For good. For those who love God. So let's just have a quick look at Joseph's heart because I'm aware that time is moving on. And I think it's quite incredible that when Joseph, just think about this, When Joseph saw his brothers, he wept. What a different heart 
God had obviously been working on his heart from day one, from when he was 17 years old, that just the sight of his brothers, the love that must have welled up in him, the remembrance of those prophetic words that one day they're going to bow down. And I bet you when they bowed down to him, something welled up inside of him. Oh, my goodness, this is what God said would happen. These are my brothers. And that overwhelming emotion in him, it just overspilled and it caused him to weep. Joseph was a tender-hearted man. The things that Joseph had been through could have caused him to be hard, could have caused him to be resentful, could have caused him to be revengeful. He was the second most powerful man in Egypt. He could have chopped off their heads. But what did he do? He wept. It's quite remarkable. And I think in that moment, he have you ever had a moment like that? When you just suddenly think, oh my goodness, God, this is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. And the the overwhelming sense of what God has done causes us to, to well up and sometimes to spill over into tears. What had he done in that time? He learned to trust God no matter where life took him. He already knew, although he didn't know because the New Testament wasn't written, but he already had that sense of all things work together for good because God is the one who is able to work in us. And when God is positioning us for greatness, we will sometimes have no idea about it until it happens. You know, I look back over my life and I can see very, very, very clearly how God has led me and prepared me for what I'm doing today. Not just in the church, but in my work life, in my family life, in everything. It's very obvious because I've now got hindsight. Did I know that 40 years ago? No, I didn't. It was just a step-by-step walk with God, giving my desires to God, trusting him and knowing that he had a plan and a purpose for me. So why is it that two people can go through the same experience or a similar experience and one person can come out relatively unscathed and for the other person it's an absolute disaster? And it really is down to the state of our heart. So you and I could go through a very similar experience and for me it could be calamity, for you it could be relatively unscathed. Why? Because the state of our heart. And the state of our heart is so important. What you allow in and what you allow to leave of what God has put into the core of you. My grandmother was an incredibly, incredibly bitter woman because of what she lost. And yet, uh, my grandmother, my my grandfather was killed in the war when a bomb dropped on the house. And my grandmother was incredibly embittered, not only for losing her husband, but also because by the time she came back from where she'd been evacuated to, the house had been ransacked and they were quite wealthy. And so she was embittered, and she was so embittered to the day she died. She bargained with God constantly until the day she died. And she was incredibly embittered. And right up to the last (coughs) moment of her death, she refused to accept God. And she was still angry with God when she breathed her last breath. And yet... I don't know whether you'll remember, I'm going back maybe four or five years, we went through a spell in London where there was a lot of teenage stabbings. I think in the first six months of the year there was something like 20. And I remember seeing parents on the news saying, I forgive, I forgive the person who stabbed my son to death. I forgive them. What a different heart... And what that forgiveness was doing, it, wasn't, it was not saying, well, what you did was fine. It was saying, I'm unhooking myself. 
by forgiving you, you will, re- you will be caught and you will be punished, and that's absolutely right, but I am unhooking myself emotionally from that so that I can walk free. The re- forgiveness is for us. It's for you, the forgiver. That's the purpose of forgiveness, to free you from the torture that that is going to hold you in unless you do. What a different heart. And the the reason why two people can go through the same thing and have a different outcome is because of the state of your heart, the state of my heart, and whether we've guarded our heart, whether we've protected our heart. And the scriptures have a lot to say about our heart. Um, John 15 talks about God being the gardener. It talks about, um, I am the vine and you are the branches. And it talks about the gardener wanting to help us to stay attached. What does a gardener do? A gardener prunes and a gardener tills the land. A gardener would always want to, because I'm doing this in my garden, because the weeds keep coming up, to till the land and to keep the soil soft so that actually the, the ground is enabled to produce the right things and the nourishment is able to get to the roots. <clears throat> And we have a responsibility to look after our heart. We have a responsibility to keep it tender-hearted and soft so the gardener, when he's tilling the ground of our heart, can ensure that the nourishment, which is the word of God, can get to the roots and cause something to flourish. The purpose, he says in John 15, is so that you might bear much fruit. You cannot bear much fruit in hard, stony, hard-heartedness. It has to stay tender-hearted, and we have to be responsible to look after our heart. Spiritually, our heart is the centre of our being, and our mind and our will and our choices and our emotions all need to have care and attention, and God wants us to guard it against all things and allow the gardener to keep that soil, no matter what we're going through, in our hearts soft. So what does Ephesians say to us then? Ephesians says this, get rid of all bitterness, anger, rage, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behaviour. There is an onus on us. us. It says get rid of it. So on that guard that's guarding your heart needs to let this out. It says get rid of it. There's an onus on us. In Proverbs it says this, To learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. I took that. It's the New Living Translation. Let's repeat this together, okay? To learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. And we're adults, okay? It's stupid to hate correction. We have to allow God to correct us. We have to love discipline. We have to, in order to learn, this is what scripture teaches us. And Proverbs also says this, obey my commands and live. Guard my instructions as you guard your own eyes. Tie them on your fingers as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Some of us, and I hold my hand up too, some of us need discipline. Some of us need correction. Some of us need the counsel of others. Some of us need to hold the word of God up like a mirror and say, this is me, but this is the Bible. What does this say that I need to change? Shigan, could you guys come back and the worship team, please? Would it be okay to sing at the end, Beautiful Exchange? Um, Is that all right, Vlad? Um, And instead, the Bible says this. It says that we need to be... It doesn't say that. It says we need to be kind 
and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So as we guard our hearts, we need to let out the bitterness and the rage and the anger and the harsh words and the slander and all types of behaviour that don't belong there and allow the guard to let in kindness and forgiveness and tender-heartedness. And how do we do that? Because God works in us. And when we turn to him and say, God, I want to be disciplined. God, I want to be corrected. And like David, search me and know me. Search me and know me. God, you do that work in me. That will position me. You know, the abundance of God in our lives is not passively received or imposed, and it doesn't happen by chance. You have to put it into action. You have to be in active pursuit of what you want God to do in your life. It's not like osmosis, where you just absorb it like ink on a blotting paper. If we really want God to do something in our lives, then we have to be actively pursuing what we want God to do. And just look at this last picture as I come to an end. All of those trees or plants are growing in different kind of soil. And it very much depends on the soil as to what will grow. And because I love my garden, I've come to realise that aces only grow in ericaceous soil. Ericaceous soil is acid, more acid than alkaline. And I've tried so often to plant it and make it grow, but I grew it in the wrong soil and it wouldn't grow. It just shriveled up and died. These plants will only grow to their most productive in the place where the soil is in conducive to them absorbing nourishment into the roots. You try and put those in other places and they won't grow. Try and grow something in volcanic soil. Uh, try and put an acer in volcanic soil. Try and put something which only grows in sandy soil, a cactus, that only needs a little bit of water in a place that gets flooded and it won't work. It'll die. Things only grow when they're in the right soil. And we need to ensure that the gardener is working in our hearts to ensure that the soil is in the right kind of texture, the right kind of softness. And what's that? It's tenderheartedness. It's forgiveness. It's understanding. Each thing that is in our life that is weighing us down, our shame, our guilt, is going to inhibit God's growth in our life. He wants us to be free. And as we sing this song, and um, I want us to just think about what we've spoken about this morning. You know, there's no point in hearing this if it doesn't have, if we don't take something from it. You know, this has challenged me hugely, even in my own life, to come back to God again. God, search me and know me. Is there some rocky soil? Is there some eroded soil? Is there some soil in my heart that is inhibiting things really growing in you? And as we sing this song, just it's got, give it to God. Amen. Vlad did this right at the very beginning, and I thought, oh, let's, let's, let's bookend the service. Do it at the beginning and do it at the end. God, I give it to you, and I want you to help me to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. And I want to let go. Let go. It's like, um, I always visualise it like a ship or a boat tied up at the harbour. I'm going to undo the rope and I'm going to throw it out and let it sail away so that I can't take it back. And let's think about the exchange that Christ did for us. And if you want help or you want prayer or you want to talk through something, Vlad and I will be around and others will be around at the end of the service. Come and deal with it. You could go out of here today freer, lighter, Something in God that has changed because you came to church today because God is here.
and we know he is. Thanks, guys. <laughs>